Welcome to Walk 4 of Via Divina, the Franciscan Way. During the past walks, we have focused on joy, suffering, poverty, and community that were central parts to Francis's life following the call to rebuild the church. It can be easy to forget that in his youth, Francis was a man of war who dreamed of breaking the bodies of human enemies on the battlefield as a knight in full armor. Instead, God transformed him into a man of God who tended the broken bodies of the most vulnerable members of society. His love and pursuit of shalom extended beyond humankind to all of God's creatures. The biblical concept of shalom means peace, harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, and tranquility. It describes harmony among all human beings made in God's image, as well as between people and God's creation. Scripture is clear. Part of what it means to be made in God's likeness is to exercise dominion over creation in a way that blesses all of creation. In the words of Lisa Sharon Harper from her book, The Very Good Gospel, God intends that all aspects of creation would live in forcefully good relationship with one another, that honors and stewards the image of God in every corner of the earth, and stewards the rest of creation with care and protection. This is God's intent of shalom. St. Francis had a very embodied connection with the natural world. There were caves that he would go to. He would lay down on the ground, look at the birds, the trees, for days, for hours. That was a huge part of how he experienced the kindness and the nurture of God. And his connection with the land is nothing new. It's something that indigenous people have known for millennia and continue to know and model to us. I'm going to invite us today to have an embodied experience of that ourselves. So maybe as you are walking, you find a little place of grass or sand, a tree that kind of feels inviting to you. But I'd like you to find a place, if possible, where you can rest your body just for a few more minutes, just for a few minutes to actually lay down on the earth. You can feel free to pause this as you find that space and unpause when you're ready. And as you find that, whether you're leaning against the tree or you're laying down on the ground, notice how that feels on your body. Perhaps the bark of the tree, the coolness, or maybe even the wetness of the grass. Perhaps the way the sand takes the shape of you, or if you, even if you're in water, the way the water holds you. And just for a moment of imaginative play, consider that the nerve endings in your own body are connected to the earth like roots of a tree. 
And perhaps your own nerve endings mesh with the roots of the tree, the roots of the earth that go down deep and have been around forever and can hold you with ancient arms. And maybe you imagine stress or exhaustion or fear or worry. Maybe you allow that to seep through your own nervous system into the root system of the earth made by our creator, sustained by our creator. And maybe you allow the the nourishment, the ever-aliveness of the earth to come back into your nervous system, into your body with new life that's full of peace, that's full of certainty that you are not alone. Breathe as you wish and as it feels good to your body. I'm going to read the Canticle of the Creatures by St. Francis of Assisi and allow this sweetness of connection, kinship with everything, being a part of the family of things, to help you rest. Most high, all-powerful, good Lord, yours are the praises, the glory and the honor and all blessing. To you alone, most high, do they belong and no human is worthy to mention your name. Praised be you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially Sir Brother Son, who is the day and through whom you give us light. And he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor and bears a likeness of you, Most High One. Praised be you, my Lord, through Sister Moon and the stars in heaven you formed them clear and precious and beautiful. Praised be you, my Lord, through Brother Wind and through the air, cloudy and serene and every kind of weather, through whom you give sustenance to your creatures. Praised be you, my Lord, through Sister Water, who is very useful and humble and precious and chaste. Praised be you, my Lord, through Brother Fire, through whom you light the night. And he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. Praised be you, my Lord, through our sister, Mother Earth, who sustains and governs us and who produces various fruit with colored flowers and herbs. Praised be you, my Lord, through those who give pardon for your love and bear infirmity and tribulation. Blessed are those who endure in peace for you, for by you, Most high shall they be crowned. Praised be you, my Lord, through our sister bodily death, from whom no one living can escape. Woe to those who die in mortal sin. Blessed are those whom death will find in your most holy will, for the second death shall do them no harm. Praise and bless my Lord and give him thanks and serve him with great humility. Amen. I invite you to stay in this place as long as you'd like. Maybe you come back to that awareness of your senses. 
Maybe just stay in peace. And when you're ready to leave that space, please take some big, deep breaths in and out. And open your eyes slowly. Maybe move to just a sitting position. Perhaps stay there for a little while. Slowly stand. And maybe thank this space for being a sanctuary for your soul. Peace to you. There is a legend that Francis once traveled to a city called Gubbio that had been suffering attacks from a ravenous wolf. This wolf was killing and eating livestock and even small children. Several of the men from town were sent into the forest beyond the city walls to kill the wolf, but they became the wolf's victims instead. Francis, who had arrived in Gubbio with some of his followers, determined to find and speak to the wolf to stop the violence. He left the safety of the village walls with a few of his brothers to confront the wolf. Why are you weak with fear, my brothers? Will you run away also? This vicious wolf will not harm us. God is here. Is he not our refuge and strength? A very present help in times of trouble? So do not lose heart, even if the earth trembles, or the mountains are lifted, or, or if this wolf attacks us when we are least prepared. God will give us wisdom to find the reason for its violence. I will speak to this creature of God as I have spoken to the other creatures. You must believe me. The other brothers have left us because their fear of death became greater than their faith in God. And now it is only a few of us. Yet we are not alone. The spirit of peace is here. Do you not feel the spirit's presence? Breathe deeply and you will know. The spirit of peace cannot bear to see one more innocent child devoured by this beast. We will find it, and I will speak to it. It will listen to me as a messenger of the Creator, because we have the same God who cares for our well-being. Take heart and stay with The people feared that Francis and his disciples would become the wolf's next meal. They had no reason to hope for change. Yet what choice did they have but to put their trust in Francis's bizarre and far-fetched scheme? So, Francis and his disciples went deep into the forest to find the wolf. The deeper they went, 
the more terrified his followers became until only one was left. Eventually, the wolf came charging at them. Francis immediately made the sign of the cross and said, Come here, brother wolf. I command you on behalf of Christ that you do no harm to me or to anyone. The wolf halted in his tracks, closed his mouth, and walked like a lamb to the feet of Francis. They spoke, and Francis discovered that the wolf's pack had left him behind after he had been injured. To survive alone, the wolf began hunting anything he could find to eat. When he was attacked by the men of Gubbio, he was forced to defend himself. Francis traveled back to the city gates with the wolf and preached reconciliation to both the wolf and the people of Gubbio, who stood in shock and wonder. As an act of reconciliation, they agreed that the wolf would stop attacking the city and the villagers would feed the wolf to keep him from starvation. To seal this pledge of shalom, the wolf placed his paw in Francis's hand. From that point on, the people were safe and the wolf was fed. Legend has it that the same wolf lived in Gubbio for two years and entered houses going door to door and doing no harm to anyone. When the wolf died, the citizens of Gubbio grieved his loss as a member of their community. Francis had brought God's shalom into a volatile situation that pitted humans against creation and turned enemies into beloved friends. brought our youth group from California to New York City for a mission trip. We hopped to attention in the four-star soup kitchen, putting out hundreds of meals under the supervision of an exacting chef. We painted and shoveled on Staten Island, where they were still recovering from Hurricane Sandy. And whenever we had free time, we crammed onto a crowded subway to hit up another tourist destination. Some of the youth were jumpier in these crowds than others. Grace thought that people watching in the crowds was absolute heaven. But Naz put her earbuds in and her head down, drawing in her sketchbook to survive the throngs. Even going out for dinner was not necessarily relaxing. New York restaurants are tinier and far more crowded than Californians are used to. Every night when we debriefed, The youth were overwhelmed by the fast pace, the crowds, the intensity of it all. I asked about their feet and their blisters and their energy levels, but I also watched their shoulders for their tension, which was often high. Every time I looked at Mimi, I got a teeth-bared smile, and I'm okay grimace with no relaxation in it at all. But we had an easier day midweek when the 4th of July broke up the routine, so I asked for volunteers to head up to the roof garden with me. Curious, Mimi and Fred and Melvie came up. It involved a steep stair climb and athleticism to get to the top of this hundred-year-old church building, but then once you clambered out onto the roof, you could see the tiniest garden ever. The four raised garden beds could have fit comfortably in my California bedroom. 
Fred took the measure of this little garden and said, Four of this? We can do this in ten minutes. Melvy squealed, Dandelions! She squealed even more enthusiastically when I told her we could bring the dandelions downstairs to feed to the nursery school's classroom bunny. Mimi said nothing as she dug her nose deep into the parsley and took a deep breath. The garden was small, but it was enough. Here were thickly planted herbs growing for the soup kitchen downstairs, a bunch of weeds for us to pull, butterflies flying in and around the flowers of the parsley bolting to seed, and the sweet smell of topsoil that had been carried bag by bag up the ancient stairs to make this garden possible. It was a tiny miracle. We worked for more than Fred's prophesied ten minutes. We all got lost in the weeds. You can really get caught up in even a tiny garden bed if you let yourself relax into it. We trimmed herbs and pulled weeds and wrapped stacks of greens in newspaper to take downstairs. Dandelions for the rabbit, herbs for the kitchen, weeds for the compost bin. We got into the little rhythm of it, letting our eyes catch on to the subtle differences between weed and herb, letting our hands guide us through the small thickets of greenery, letting our breath out. When we were done, Mimi shouldered the little stack of weeds and smiled. It was the first true smile I had seen from her all week. Shoulders loose again and eyes bright. She said later, New York is a stressful city. You're just in the middle of so much. But the little garden was secluded and away and high up, so I found solace in that. We saw a similar thing happen on the last night of the same trip. After evening debrief, we went out to hear a swing band performing in a tiny park and to bop around, amateurly swing dancing on the sidelines. The dancers of the group slipped straight into their happy place, but that left some non-dancing folk on the sidelines as tightly wound as crowd-oppressed as ever. But we were out in a park at night, and it did not take long for those who were uninterested in dancing to start noticing what was blinking in the bushes around us. Fireflies. An eastern U.S. treat, an entomological pleasure that never made it past the Rockies to California. Naz and Sam ran around catching fireflies and taking photos of them. They disappeared into a reverie of studying, playing, leaping, catching, and photographing their own unchoreographed dance to the rhythm of their tiny blinking partners. They shook off the anxiety of big city living and fell out of time into the sheer joy of these fascinating creatures. We had to pull them away when it was time to go. It doesn't have to be the blue iris, Mary Oliver writes. It could be a box of dirt on a rooftop or a firefly or the irrepressible dandelions. Just pay attention. Just enjoy. We need nature, need it for our health and our sanity and our sense of connection to the one who created it. Creation is rich with blessings for us, and these blessings are not restricted to the highest mountain, the clearest sea, or the rarest flower. Taste and see, the Bible says, meaning jump in and open up your senses. The Lord is good. 
The world is good too, even in its great brokenness, in its brutal concrete wrapping, in its frightful rush and noise. This is the world God so loved. And God does not withhold that lavish love from you. We can creation grown is crying out for God every night when stars come out I hear creation song and it sings oh, oh, oh Lord and we sing oh You are light and you are love. Stories of knights and squires heading south to join the Fifth Crusade in the siege of the Egyptian city of Damietta likely passed through Assisi. This time, fighting in the Crusade did not compel him to go. Instead, compassion and conviction for the misery and death experienced by the Crusaders welled up inside him. He wondered if peace was possible. Maybe the Sultan, known to be a devout and holy man, would meet and come to love Jesus, the Prince of Peace, whom Francis followed. So Francis and his companion left on this foolhardy errand to attempt to convert the Sultan of Palestine, Syria, and Egypt, al-Malik al-Kamil. Perhaps, he thought, in this act he might end the war by brokering peace. More likely, he was compelled by the latent desire from his youth to find purpose and be transformed while pursuing heroic ends, even if that meant dying. When Francis arrived on the sandy banks of the Nile in August of 1219, he was devastated by what he saw. 100,000 fellow Christians were camped outside the walls of the besieged city of Damietta, Egypt. The squalid conditions of the camp, lack of fresh water, and rotting and stinking corpses of both Muslim and Christians floating in the Nile deeply disturbed him. The sexual immorality and drunkenness of the Crusaders along with the butchery committed at the hands of professed Christians, was disorienting for Francis. Less than a week after his arrival, several Muslim spies were caught. The crusaders cut off their lips, noses, and ears, gouged an eye out of each man, and sent them back into the fortress at Damietta. The forces under the direction of al-Malik al-Kamil retaliated by bombarding the camp with tar and fire. Even though the Damietta fortress was nearly impenetrable, Al-Kamil wanted to avoid further casualties. The siege had dragged on for a year. People were suffering on both sides of the fortress walls, and he was eager to see it come to an end. He sent messengers offering the crusaders the city of Jerusalem the relics of the true cross, and a large sum of money to end the ordeal. Control of Jerusalem was, after all, the chief quest of the crusade. 
but the commander of this crusade, Cardinal Pelagio, flatly refused. Nothing but unilateral victory and the annihilation of the Muslims would do. Later, al-Malik would add to his offer the release of all Christian captives, the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem, and 20 Muslim noblemen to be held hostage until the reconstruction was complete. Still, Cardinal Pelagio refused. Francis was disillusioned and brokenhearted. This was no holy war. Francis made an offer to Pelagio, allow me to go to the sultan. I wish to convert more by example than word. It's possible that he would die as a martyr, which would bring the gospel to the sultan and make for a glorious end to his life. Or better yet, the man might convert. Al-Malik was the same age as Francis and a deeply devout person. Perhaps he could get through to him, holy man to holy man. Illuminatus would come with him. After all, Jesus sent the disciples two by two, and Illuminatus knew Arabic. It was a suicide mission, and Pelagio expected to have Francis and Illuminatus's head tossed into their camp by nightfall. But if the fool wanted to be martyred in this way, so be it. He consented, and Francis, along with Brother Illuminatus, were sent into the fortress of Damietta and ushered into the presence of Sultan Al-Kamil. After sharing the Christian message and giving a plea to lay down their arms and believe in Jesus, Francis and Illuminatus were in trouble. The Sultan's advisors insisted that these men be immediately decapitated for attempting to convert them. Al-Malik refused. I will never condemn you to death, he told Francis privately, for that would indeed be an evil reward to bestow upon you, who conscientiously risked death in order to save my life before God, as you believe. But when it was clear that the sultan would not convert, Francis returned to the crusader's camp. The sultan reiterated his offer for peace. He even granted these holy men safe travel to Jerusalem, supplying them generously for the journey. Sadly, Cardinal Pelagio refused the peace offer. Francis did not receive any of what he had set out to accomplish. Conversion of the sultan, peace between the warring forces, or martyrdom in the attempt. The only thing he got was a trachoma infection that would eventually leave him nearly blind, eyes oozing and inflamed and in constant pain for the rest of his life. It was a different martyrdom or journey to being a hero than the one he had envisioned. But it profoundly changed him. The Christian forces were in as much need of conversion as the Muslims. In fact, it was Francis who probably experienced the deeper conversion. Instead of sending friars into hostile environments with a martyr's quest, Francis now saw that the gospel should be lived and preached with gentleness and reverence. He wanted his brothers to recognize the divine imprint within those they considered heathen, live faithfully, bear witness gently. The rest is up to God. We now invite you to a practice of praying for shalom over people in your life. 
and we'll do this with an awareness of our belovedness. Francis might not have been familiar with the Hebrew word shalom, but Francis embodied shalom. He embodied a holistic, wholehearted peace. He embodied justice and goodness. Whether it was living in harmony with the land or befriending the enemy of the crusaders, his life was centered on peace. Consider slowing down or even stopping for this prayer. Let's begin by being aware of our belovedness in God. If this is too abstract for you, consider becoming aware of someone who loves you, a partner, a good friend, a parent, a child, even a pet, and focus on that love. And as I pray a prayer of Shalom, I invite you to repeat these phrases after me, or you may make up your own. May I be safe from harm. May I be filled with joy. May I be healthy and whole. May I live in harmony with God's creation. May I live in harmony with other people. May I live in harmony with God. Now I invite you to shift your awareness of being the object of the love from God or from someone else to being the source of that love or the conduit of that love. God loving you, that love is passing through you and going out to other people. Bring to mind someone that is close to you, a loved one. Let's pray this prayer for them. May they be safe from harm. May they be filled with joy. May they be healthy and whole. May they live in harmony with God's creation. May they live in harmony with other people.
May they live in harmony with God. And finally, bring to mind someone with whom you are in conflict or in disagreement about something. This might be someone with different political views or religious views or someone with whom you are in direct conflict. And again, coming from a place of love, let us pray for them. If you have a hard time loving them, just imagine God's love for them. May they be safe from harm. May they be filled with joy. May they be healthy and whole. May they live in harmony with God's creation. May they live in harmony with other people. May they live in harmony with God. You may continue in this posture of prayer for as long as you'd like. Peacekeeping is different from peacemaking. Most of us can be peacekeepers. Sometimes it's a matter of smoothing over ruffled feathers. But to be a peacemaker is different. It can be dangerous. A peacemaker steps into the middle of conflict. You put yourself in danger by entering into the midst of opposing parties, often not finding favor with either side. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called children of God, he was saying that those who step into a crossfire to seek peace are of the same DNA as God. Where are people in your life creating divisions through their words and actions? How might you be called to speak a word of reconciliation, even if it feels dangerous? Separation is often the root of broken shalom. 
whether it's a rift between a sister and brother or a war between nations. What creates this separation? Sometimes it's a wall, a fence, a road, a railway track. Sometimes it's convictions, principles, passions, or ideologies. Sometimes it's family heritage, culture, an unexamined way of being. But most often, it is fear that separates us from our neighbors. Fear of those who are different from me, and fear of what a real encounter might require. Whether we are people of faith or not, almost everyone can agree on something like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So then, the real question is, who is the other? The people in Jesus' time were asking questions similar to those that Francis asked and that we ask today. Who are my people? And who is the other? Who is my neighbor, the one I am called to love? And who is the outsider? Others and outsiders are to be avoided, judged, and sometimes hated. Like the divisions between the Palestinians and the Jewish people today, there were fierce divisions between Samaritans and Jews in Jesus' time. From the Jewish perspective, Samaritans were a mixed race formed after an Assyrian king exiled most of the Israelites. He populated what was Israel's capital city of Samaria with foreigners who eventually intermarried with the remaining Jews. They were not seen as true Jews. Not only were they of mixed ethnicity with the enemy, but their beliefs were different. They believed that the true place of worship was not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim, and that only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, was authorized. For these reasons, they went to great lengths to avoid each other. Samaritans did not welcome Jews into their homes while passing through, and, rather than contaminate themselves, good Jews would bypass Samaria, taking a longer route across the Jordan River through the Transjordan region and crossing the river again near their destination. Let's listen to Jesus as he seeks to repair this separation with one person. The sun beat down on the nape of Miriam's neck. The gravel crunched under her feet. How will I manage to carry water back today? My empty jar is burdened enough, she thought. When she looked up, she saw a man already sitting at the well. Her stomach dropped. He watched her as she approached. She came in the middle of the day to avoid people. Maybe if I just ignore him. She walked up to the well and set her jar down. As she began to draw water, he spoke. Her heart sank. She would have to engage. Will you give me a drink? He asked. She noticed he didn't have a jar with him. Why was he there? Was he a traveler? She could tell he was a Jewish man. She felt curious and annoyed at the same time. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? The man smiled. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Miriam didn't know whether to laugh or to feel insulted. Was this man crazy? Maybe the extreme heat has gone to his head. After a moment of searching his face, she replied, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. 
Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? The man stood up to step closer to the well. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Who was this man to claim this? Eternal life? His words didn't make sense. But at the same time, he seemed so grounded. Miriam thought to herself as she took a step back. Before her mind could catch up with her mouth, she replied, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here. The look on the man's face was gentle, but serious. Go. Call your husband and come back here. I have no husband, she quickly replied. You are right when you say that. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you're currently with is not your husband. You're telling me the truth. Miriam's face turned red. She was shocked. Does he know me? He's not from here. How could he possibly know that? Her heart sped up. Keep your cool, Miriam. Don't let him know you're afraid. But who is this man? Is he a holy man or does he have a secret? Something about him seems different, though. Sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Amidst her embarrassment, Miriam wanted to remind him of the division between them. Jews had always thought that their way was better. Woman, he replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. All his words sounded so new, like nothing Miriam had ever heard before. Could there be a way for Jews and Samaritans to worship God together as one? They had hated one another for so many years but they believed in the same God. It was so confusing. I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She quickly brushed off her confusion and curiosity. The man's countenance brightened. He took one step closer to her, gazed right into her eyes and said, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. What? Messiah? She didn't expect this, but somehow things were making sense now in a way they had never before. This man in front of her was holy. They had never met, but he did know who she was. He could give her living water. People would be able to worship together in spirit and in truth, and he knew how. Just then, a group of Jewish men walked up the path. 
the woman smiled at her new friend and began to run back to town with a joyful urgency. As she ran, she laughed because she realized that she had left her water jar at the well. But she couldn't wait another moment to let the people know that she had met the savior of the world who would bring peace to her people. She'd go back for it later. A couple days later, Miriam sat in the middle of a crowd around the man known as Jesus. Her town had invited him and his disciples to stay for a few days. The people buzzed with excitement and held on to his every word as he taught. She hadn't experienced this kind of unity in a long time. Where once these were the people she had avoided, now they joined her, just as convinced as she was that their Messiah had come to make things new. Simply being with Jesus transformed the way they regarded one another, and it restored their hope that they could be one in the Lord with their new Jewish friends. A cloud of joy and peace covered them all. They had become neighbors to each other. Miriam looked around in amazement. Something new had come, and she couldn't believe that she was a part of it. As you continue walking, slow your pace, look around. Allow these stories of shalom to rest in your mind. Where do you perceive breaks in shalom? With creation? Between people? What might it take to build a bridge instead of widening the divisions? Francis used to greet everyone with the words, May the Lord give you peace. One might say that the central message of Francis's life was not about poverty, but about peace. He urged the brothers that they must be careful not to be angry or disturbed at the sin of another, for anger and disturbance impede charity in ourselves and others. How could people live in peace if they harbored ill will towards others? Whether it was broken shalom between humans and wolves, humans and each other, or humans and God, Francis called everyone to lay down their weapons of ego, power, and injustice, and to pursue peace. In this spirit, hear now a prayer written centuries after Francis 
but one that carries in it so much of what he lived. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. Oh, Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life.